Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell, as always. Paddy, how are you this week? I am absolutely fantastic. Although, if you're watching this on video, you will see that I have, uh, I don't know what you would call this, Gary, a uh, protuberance <laughs> on my eye. No, my eye, like I was injured. Yeah, I got busted, and it's all, like, swollen and stuff. Um, so, look, that's one of those little... Uh, Easter eggs, you know, you find in the, the triage content. But look, we're not here to talk about my eye. We're not here to talk about your hamstring, Gary. I presume it's going well. Um, we're here to talk about a female health-related topic that's, you know, it's kind of important for humanity, would you say? I would say so. Like, this is arguably, like, like when you talk about the any any type of sex difference, like, this is ultimately the root of it all. When it comes down to it, this is what it's all aiming towards, and that is pregnancy, okay? The big difference between the sexes is that women get pregnant, okay? And there are a lot of anatomical, a lot of physiological um, and hormonal differences between the sexes to accommodate that. And even if you think of all the things we've talked about already, for example, like the menstrual cycle, let's say, this is all very much related to pregnancy and all of our assumptions so far when we talk about the menstrual cycle um, have been that the woman does not get pregnant. So, you know, when we talk about uh, the menstrual cycle, we say things like, oh, there's the follicular phase and then there's the luteal phase and then there's menses. Whereas that's obviously not the case if a woman gets pregnant. So this is a very unique physiological state. Um, but it's also one that many women, um, and particularly if you look at the, the demographic um, of our podcast listeners, we have a lot of people uh, in the age of the 25 to 35 range, women in that age range. And within that age range, that's where, um, in Ireland at least, most women are going to be considering um, you know, getting pregnant or trying to get pregnant. Okay, So it's a very relevant topic, and it's also one that has... Is, is a little bit difficult sometimes for personal trainers and nutritionists to discuss because it's it's hard to know where to draw the line in terms of the advice that you give. Um, and that goes for us on the podcast as well. You know, we're sharing information with you that we've gotten from, you know, different bodies like the American College of Gynecology or Obstetrics and Gynecology, different guidelines, etc. But, you know, if we were your personal trainers, we can only go so far in terms of making suggestions, okay? And one of the good things is that in most developed countries, um, in Ireland at least, you know, I've seen this firsthand, you get pretty good um, care, checkups, advice, etc. cetera, uh, when you do get pregnant. So, you know, you'll have your checkups with your uh, GP and then you'll see um, someone at the 12 week checkup, you'll make sure that you've got your appropriate vaccines, you'll be given appropriate uh, dietary advice. So for the most part, there is there are good systems in place to ensure that you get the support you need during pregnancy. But especially, I think, among our listenership, a lot of women like to be empowered themselves by feeling like when they're facing into that, they understand what lies ahead of them. Because what, hap what happens very often, and obviously this is something that would have happened much more so in the past, is that a woman might get pregnant and other than having seen some other women, you know, struggle with nausea and vomiting or those types of things, they might know anything about what's going on in their bodies. They might know anything about, you know, should I change my exercise habits? Should I change my nutrition habits, etc. So it's something that is absolutely worth learning about. Um, so 
with that said, I think that one of the, one of the places to start here is understanding maybe some of the, just a very basic understanding of, of what pregnancy is. Okay. Because, you know, we all have varying levels of understanding here and we've talked about, you know, female reproductive anatomy to some degree in this series already. So we will have mentioned uh, the uterus, for example. Um, and when it comes to pregnancy, that's the major organ of concern, I guess you could say. So within the uterus, that's where the placenta is going to form. That's where the fetus is going to grow. And that's the, the area in which that space is going to increase over the course of pregnancy and thus affect anything um, in its vicinity. So that's something that's important to understand from the get-go is that without worry, without considering hormones or any of those types of physiological changes, just think of it purely anatomically, okay? If you've got a uterus, that's in your pelvis, so it's in your lower abdominal area. As that grows during the course of pregnancy, it's taking up more and more space within the abdominal cavity, okay? So all of the other organs have to move around or get compressed to some degree, and that can lead to some of the symptoms of pregnancy. It's also pushing up against your diaphragm. So every time you take a breath, you now have to work against that force that's pushing up, especially towards the end of pregnancy. Um, it can, you know, press on blood vessels and things like that, which can change the, the dynamics of your, of your blood flow. There are many, many different things that come from just solely that anatomical fact of having um, at this big space occupying um, fetus and uterus within your abdominal cavity. Okay, so that's something that's really important to be aware of from the get-go. And also, I think another thing to, to appreciate there is, other than it just being within the abdomen, or it's like technically within the pelvic cavity, but pushing up into the abdomen, it's also more anterior. And that's something that becomes really important as well. So it's not like when you get pregnant that the fetus and the uterus grow and it bulges out from the front, from the sides and from the back. Okay. So it's only from the front really that we start to see the uh, bump that you'll see in pregnancy. And that has implications as well, because you've now got this additional weight that's uh, at the front of your body. And, you know, that can requires your postural muscles, your low back muscles, et cetera, to work much harder. Um, in addition to that, it, it's actually becomes even more challenging because you might have excess uh, body fat gain um, along with the weight associated with pregnancy and an increase in breast size, okay? And all of those things together mean that you have all this new weight at the front of your body that you now have to um, work against, okay? So that's, an, again, is an important anatomical consideration here, okay? So I just want to kind of wanted to introduce some of those those raw basics before we go into anything more complex. But do you have anything to say there before I kind of talk about maybe some of the physiology physiology stuff? Not really. Like it is basically very intuitive. If you've ever seen someone pregnant, you're like, okay, yeah, there's a there's a bulge. You know, it's like we we can see that. But we also have to be thinking about this stuff before that really occurs. You know. And that's really important, especially in relation, well, it's important for the stuff that we're going to talk about in general here, but especially in relation to, say, the exercise stuff, you know, and we might not cover all of that in today's episode. This might be a, a two-parter, um, but it does bear 
like considering when we do actually start going, okay, well, what, how, does our, how do our exercise habits change? You know, like you might just think, oh, well, I just shouldn't exercise when I'm pregnant. And, you know, we're not, we're generally not an advocate of just not exercising, you know, and, but we're probably going to have to change our exercise patterns, you know? So again, it just bears in mind keeping that there are like physiological changes, which we'll, we'll, Gary will talk about in a second, but there are also like, we'll call them like morphological changes that you have to be aware of. And obviously that's a physiological change as well. But what I mean is like, there are just considerations based on the fact that you are growing something within you and it takes up mass. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I suppose like com coming back to, to the, the uterus for a second, um, like pregnancy physiology is, is really complex and it's something I've spent a good bit of time studied, uh, studying and have had, had exams on, but the vast majority of it has little to no practical application for training or nutrition okay but some of the things that i suppose are interesting to be aware of um is the fact that right you've got your uterus okay you've got your uterine lining um we said that during the menstrual cycle normally that uterine lining lining or the endometrium is going to be you know shed that's the source of of bleeding to some degree and during pregnancy that's obviously not the case okay so during pregnancy um, due to the role of progesterone um, in particular, um, we get the, you know, effectively the nourishment of that uterine lining, and that's going to be the place in which the placenta is going to be implanted. So the placenta is effectively a, an organ that's unique to pregnancy that acts uh, to ensure appropriate transfer of many, many, many biological molecules. But if we just think about, you know, blood, nutrients, etc., between the mother and the fetus, okay? So we've got that placenta as basically the barrier between uh, mother and baby. And then we've got the uh, circulation through the umbilical vessels um, to the fetus or between the fetus the and the placenta, which then acts again as that barrier to the mother's circulation, okay? So that's effectively how the, you know, uh, fetal development is going to be sustained through those vessels. And that does actually become uh, important later on because you might be asking questions like, right, if I'm you know, putting a lot of pressure here during weight training, is that going to stop blood flow to my baby? You know, That's a very valid question. Uh, so that's something we'll come back to later. But we do have those blood vessels that are effectively uh, very important for that transfer in both directions between mother and baby. Okay, so obviously the baby is suspended in... Um, the amniotic fluid okay so you're not breathing okay for the for the most part your, your lungs are effectively going to be filled with fluid um when you're you know going through fetal, fetal development and as a result gas transfer takes place uh, via the placenta and umbilical vessels as we said okay so that's just again something that's important to be aware of if we understand the the, the absolute basics there of what's going on now the next um the next level to that, I guess, is, is understanding that there are changes in the, the basics of the cardiovascular system that accommodate that to some degree. Okay, so we get an increase in plasma volume, which is one thing that, that happens. And that means that the overall amount of fluid that is within your uh, vascular system, within your cardiovascular system that's getting pumped around the body, that's increased. Okay, and one of the things that can lead to, um, or two of the things it can lead to, number one, anemia okay a woman can experience anemia during pregnancy as a result of an increase in plasma volume this is a basic dilution effect okay 
there are, is an increase to some degree in red blood cell volume, but because plasma volume increases to a greater extent, you end up with relative anemia. Okay, so relatively lower hemoglobin, um, and that has or can have potential implications for one, what we might do with nutrition, for example, getting iron in the diet, um, and two, things like exercise capacity. If you've got less hemoglobin, that might reduce your uh, exercise capacity. There's also an increase in cardiac output. So a woman's generally gonna have a higher heart rate and also a greater stroke volume. So the amount of uh, blood that's pumped around the body with each beat um, is gonna be increased. So pregnancy is absolutely a stressor um, on your cardiovascular system. And that again, will have implications later on when we talk about you know exercise, aerobic exercise, et cetera. Okay, so just, just on this as well, this not only has implications for like when you are pregnant, but it also should start us thinking, okay, well, how do we prepare adequately for pregnancy? Like you're saying, like, this is a stressor. This is a cardiovascular stressor. So you should be thinking ahead of time going, well, okay, I'm going to be put on this cardiovascular stress. Is there anything I can do to prepare myself better for that? Now, of course, exercise generally is going to prepare you better for cardiovascular stressors, but even with within that there are stuff with like say nutrition that we can do there's stuff with you know lifestyle like all these different things there's all these different levers that we can pull so that we can have hopefully ideally an easier time of pregnancy you know so again don't be just thinking like okay well they're talking about this happens during pregnancy so we need to you know counter this during pregnancy you also need to think of it like before pregnancy 100 percent um and that's a that's a very important point because you know, there, there can be certain complications, uh, whether they be just mild symptoms, so to speak, or, you know, uh, things like uh, preeclampsia, where you get, you know, increases in blood pressure or gestational diabetes, where you get increases in blood sugar and um, the consequences of that during pregnancy. So there are things that can go wrong. Some of them are common. And one of the things that you see time and time again, is that being in better health, having better fitness, having a better nutrition, et cetera, in advance of getting pregnant, all increases your chance of good outcomes. So um, it is a really important point to, you know, take away from this, that it's not just about what you do when you're pregnant, it's about what you've done prior to that to set yourself up well. So important point for sure. Um, one thing that's important to consider here as well is that when we talk about the menstrual cycle, we talk about these fluctuations in ovarian hormones. Okay. So we talk about estrogen and progesterone and, you know, we've discussed the changes in the follicular and the luteal phase and where those respective hormones are secreted from. This is a little bit different in pregnancy because effectively what happens in pregnancy is early on, um, we're going to have the corpus, the corpus luteum, um, which is effectively going to just act as a buffer until the placenta um, is mature. Okay. So early on estrogen and progesterone are going to be released from the corpus luteum and then the placenta takes over and throughout pregnancy, then we'll have this gradual rise in estrogen and progesterone. Okay. So that can have certain, you know, physiological implications, but just note for now that we have that gradual rise uh, throughout pregnancy. Um, and, and this again has important implications because there are, for example, um, a reduction in vascular resistance. So progesterone effectively acts as a smooth muscle relaxant. So your blood, it's going to help with your blood vessels dilating, and that's important to accommodate the additional plasma volume. Okay. So if we said already that there's an increase in fluid, an increase in plasma volume, an increase in cardiac output, normally, if you have that uh, taking place, you're going to get a massive increase in blood pressure. 
So one of the important physiological changes is that your blood vessels are going to dilate to some degree to accommodate that. And that allows for the maintenance of normal or potentially in some cases, even slightly lower blood pressure. And this is why blood pressure monitoring becomes so important during pregnancy, because anytime there's an increase in blood pressure in pregnancy, it's kind of, you know, setting off alarm bells as something that's potentially abnormal and your obstetrician would be, you know, dealing with that. So again, just something to be aware of. Okay. Now, again, just to, to, to summarize the, some of the things that are really important here in relation to um, the, just the space itself. Okay. The, the uterus, especially as we think of moving into the second and third trimester, if we think about uterus plus fetus as taking up a certain amount of space along with the fluid, as I said, that's, that can have effects in the cardiovascular system. It can have effects in the respiratory system. Okay, so we are, have got this pressure up against the diaphragm. The diaphragm is going to have to work harder. You're generally going to have some degree of relative hyperventilation where you'll be breathing a bit faster. Um, this can be difficult as well if you're like lying flat, for example. Uh, let's say we put you on a bench press and you're trying to breathe and suddenly you've got all this pushing up against your diaphragm. That's going to be difficult. Okay, so that has implications. Think about your genital urinary system as well. So let's say you're... Um, you know, you've got a, let's say you've got a, a bladder volume of 600 milliliters. Okay. You've got this 600 milliliter chamber that's now being compressed by a much larger chamber uh, with uterus plus fetus plus amniotic fluid. This is why, you know, incontinence can sometimes be an issue during pregnancy. Or if you've ever spent time around a lady that's pregnant, she's often, you know, quite keen on getting to the bathroom pretty quickly and completely understandable. Okay. So again, there's compression there that again would have implications for the gym. You know, if you're trying to stay super hydrated in the gym and then you're doing, you know, really heavy lifting that again is all putting pressure on your bladder that can um, require you to, to go to the bathroom more potentially. Um, and then your gastrointestinal system as well, obviously. So that's all in there within your abdominal cavity. If you've got all this pressure and let's say you have a very large meal and you've got lots of gas or something like that. Um, that pressure, again, is going to have implications for uh, digestion, potentially increasing reflux after large meals um, and, you know, more flatulence potentially. So overall, they're, they're probably the primary um, implications of having the additional just space that's pushing on the abdominal cavity. The only other things would be that sometimes in some cases, what, women, what can happen is that the, you can get compression of um, your lymphatics or your veins that are bringing blood flow back or lymphatic flow back. And that can lead to maybe more edema on one side versus the other. Um, but edema, again, as we said, is, is some to some degree a normal phenomena in pregnancy due to the increase in plasma volume. Uh, the only fi the, the final thing I suppose that is relevant as well is that pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. And what that means is that we have an increase in clotting factors and an increase in the risk um, or something like a, a clot taking place. So for example, a DVT or deep vein thrombosis is a clot that occurs in the deep veins within your legs. And one of the risks there is that that can travel up through your venous system and reach your um, lungs and get a pulmonary embolism. So that's something that is really important is, and is something that people would generally be aware of. We mentioned it in the last podcast, we talked about the pill. And we said that although you have an increase in risk of something like a DVT or a clot uh, when on the pill, that risk is, is even greater during pregnancy. So the reason I bring that up is because it's one of the important implications is that you maintain your physical activity and maintain exercise as best as, good, as, best as you can. If you're sedentary, 
it's a massive uh, increase in risk factor for something like a clot because one of the things that contributes to clots is stasis. Okay, so if your blood is just not moving around, it's not being pumped around, your muscles aren't contracting, that's an increased risk factor for a clot anywhere in the body, really. Um, and when we talk about the legs, obviously, if you're walking around, you're doing physical activity, you've got that venous pumping from your muscles, it's returning all that fluid from uh, the, the extremities of the body, and that reduces risk of clots. So I think overall, they're probably some of the primary things to, to be aware of, of the physiological changes, like I'm absolutely certain there are more, but they're the major ones that come to, to mind for me that, that maybe have relevance for someone listening to this podcast. Yeah, there's just two things I want to just add before we get into the, the meat and potatoes, so to speak. And first thing is, like, humans were designed to exercise. So we should be keeping up exercise and movement in general throughout pregnancy. You know, now obviously, look, listen to your doctor. They're trying to give you the advice that you need specifically. But as a generality, like humans were designed to exercise. So we're supposed to keep doing that. That's going to keep all the physiological stuff going, right? But also, humans were designed to go through pregnancy so while all of these things can actually you know you can go oh man that's that's terrible this thing can go wrong that thing can go wrong there's whatever was it nine billion of us you know so it doesn't go that wrong that often you know now obviously there's you know degrees to that you know um but this shouldn't be seen as a oh my god this is a terrible event i need to like you know overhaul everything you know i'm gonna have to do this this and this like no your, your body is designed to be able to do this we're just talking about making sure that we're in the best health to do this and then also to go through it um, in the healthiest manner, I suppose, you know, because I know like I've had clients that have been pregnant or gotten pregnant or, you know, are, were previously pregnant and they have all a lot of questions that are like, well, what should I do about this? And are there any exercises I should avoid here? What about nutrition? And they were obviously Look, some of the things I'm like, look, that's outside my scope of practice. I can't tell you what to do. Here's some like, you know, the NHS guidelines or the HSE guidelines or whatever it is. Um, but I know people have a lot of questions, both in terms of what should they do to keep themselves in the best health? And then also what should they do to support the, the growing fetus, the growing child, you know? Um, so Gary, where do we start with this? Yeah, so where do we start with this? Um, I, I think what we're going to do is we're going to talk about nutrition first, and then depending on how far we get through that, uh, we might touch on training at the end. Otherwise, we'll do a part two. Okay, so firstly, I think one of the things that's it's important, as we said, is that nutrition before pregnancy um, is in a good place. Okay, so um, it is important, as I said, to be aware of the fact that if you're obese, for example, or you have pre-existing diabetes or pre-existing hypertension, et cetera, that these things are risk factors in advance of you getting pregnant, okay? So if you're, you know, have a BMI of, of 40, let's say, that increases the risk of complications for both mother and baby ahead of pregnancy. Um, so if you're in that position where you're thinking, you know what, next few years, I'd like to have kids, then like getting in, you know, better uh, physical fitness, improving your diet overall, improving your body composition overall, is likely to have a, a positive effect on your outcomes. Okay, so uh, that can be a, a difficult thing for to sometimes relay to women, because there's an element of like, if, if someone, for example, if, if, a, if there was a complication in a previous pregnancy, a woman can often t 
torture herself saying, what did I do wrong? You know, what was it? Should I have, should I have done something differently? How is this my fault? And that can be a really, really difficult thing to go through. And the important thing to be aware of, I suppose, is that like, when you think of like complications, there are infinite numbers of things that can go wrong. Most of what goes wrong in human health is just chaos and randomness. And what we're trying to do is get some sort of control um, on that. So generally, when we talk about risk factors, it might increase the risk, but it's not like 100%. You know, we're, we're often talking about things like, oh, let's say if you lose uh, five kilos of body fat, you have a 10% reduced risk of X. Like we're generally talking about relatively small effects. Um, so don't, don't beat yourself up uh, in the case that there are complications, but do note that there are things that we can control. Okay, so first, first and foremost, we want to create an environment that's conducive of pregnancy. And again, it goes in both directions, okay? We said that, for example, you might want to improve your body composition in the sense that, let's say you have excess body fat, you wanna bring that down. But one of the things that is actually very common is, uh, especially in athletic populations, we've mentioned this before, is chronic undernutrition, chronic over-exercising um, can reduce your fertility, okay? We've talked about this in the context previously of amenorrhea. And often we're talking about that in isolation, saying that, oh, a woman does not have a period. And one of the things that we'll throw in is it's not just about the absence of periods. It's also about the fact that, that might impact uh, your fertility in the future should you wish to have kids. So in the case that you're trying to get pregnant, adequate nutrition is really, really important. Okay, so it's not just a overweight, it's also underweight. And particularly among our listenership, if you're someone who's been chronically under-eating, chronically dieting, et cetera, that's not something that is likely to be, you know, in your favor when it comes to fertility. Okay. So we want some balance here. We want a healthy level of body fat. We've talked about this previously where um, women typically have a higher uh, body fat percentage on average anyway. And one of the things that that is contributing towards is a healthy fertile environment for reproduction. So if you're trying to, you know, get veins on your abs and, you know, shredded glutes as a woman, that's not likely to, to be uh, beneficial from a fertility perspective. Okay. So that's something that's important to be aware of as well. Uh, it's not just about body composition though. It's also about the overall nutrient density um, of your diet. Okay. So uh, eggs begin to mature somewhere around 90 days uh, before conception. So if you think about that period of time, that's where you want to be, you know, at least that period of time, trying to make sure that you're in a good place with your nutrient density. Um, and ideally, uh, not smoking, not drinking alcohol, etc. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean that there's uh, that, 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 like, that's not the same level of risk as drinking alcohol or smoking during pregnancy. That's the, the really important thing you want to avoid. But even during that lead up, uh, ideally, not you know taking recreational drugs not smoking not drinking not eating a crap diet uh, not being nutritionally inadequate etc all those things will be in your favor okay and just um, on that like you want to think of it like okay well it's roughly 90 days like ideally we're thinking of it in terms of you know the six months before we want to get pregnant you know because if you're thinking of it like okay it's 90 days that maturation process is really starting to occur like take some time for some of the changes to actually occur. Like if you just have say chronically high blood, uh, blood glucose levels, you know, just changing your diet. <laughs> oh, it's 90 days before I want to get pregnant here now. So I'm going to change my diet. Like that's not going to fix that just boom overnight, you know? So there's probably going to be some lead in time 
before that to start making the changes, both in terms of, you know, more of the, we'll say measurable physiological stuff, but also say the epigenetic stuff, you know, the, the little things that, you know, it takes a little bit of time for your, your, you know, whatever you want to call it, your genetic expression, we'll say, right. To actually change to the one that we kind of want for what we're trying to do in, in this instant. So you kind of want to be thinking, okay, the six months before I get pregnant or I want to start, you know, trying to get pregnant, you want to be starting going, okay, now I need to really look at my diet, really look at my nutrition, my lifestyle, my sleep, my stress, all of those different things, because that would ideally put you in the best position to have the best fertility, but then also the, I don't know what you want to say, the, the best eggs, you know? hundred um, percent. And it's, it is really important because, you know, for example, let's say that if you had me or you, Patty, now, right? If we had some dysregulated blood sugar, let's say we checked our blood sugar and we were, maybe we'd been bulking for a bit too long. And we're like, God, you know, I'm, I'm actually nearing kind of insulin resistance here. My blood sugar is quite high. We might be like, oh yeah, look, I'll finish off this bulk in four weeks and then I'll start to change my diet and, you know, I'll check back in six months and then I'll check back in six months and we might give it a year or two to, to see, can we get this in control? Because we know that, right, moderate increase in blood glucose, yes, it's a risk. Yes, it's a risk to our health, but generally we're talking about multiple decades across which the damage is going to take place. So we kind of accept that risk. The unique thing about pregnancy, pregnancy is that with the same increase in blood glucose, we're talking about a very short period, you know, relatively speaking in terms of like lifestyle change, relatively short period of nine months or so during which that fetus is developing. Okay. And it's incredibly sensitive uh, to the environment. So if we're, if we're, you know, feeding in a, a very high glucose solution, which is effectively what can take place, then that can have many potential complications um, for the baby, which is, not just acutely. So for example, when a, when a baby is born to, uh, after having a high supply of glucose during pregnancy, uh, it can become hypoglycemic, you know, just after being born, because suddenly it's, 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 it's got very immature physiology itself in terms of being able to regulate these things. And suddenly it's come out of this big high glucose supply and it's just not able to, to manage very well. So that, that can happen acutely, but also long-term in terms of um, risks of things like uh, diabetes, obesity, um, et cetera. So there are metabolic complications down the line uh, that start literally just in that fetal development period. So as a result, um, it is something that will typically be uh, looked for. You know, you're generally not going to have to be measuring all this stuff yourself and trying to be making specific dietary changes. Like metformin is often introduced to women during pregnancy if they have gestational diabetes. So it's not like you need to worry immediately being like, oh my God, I have so many things to check myself. And generally, you'll be, you'll be looked after by your doctor, okay? But just important to remember that point that the things that we might consider to be okay or tolerable across a multiple year period for someone who's not pregnant might be condensed into a couple of months of you know potentially being really important in someone who's pregnant, okay? Um, other things that you want to consider nutrition before pregnancy in particular are things like uh, prenatal uh, multivitamins. So a lot of women will take something like Pregnacare. Um, there's different, uh, different brands available, but for the most part, you don't have to go looking like, oh, I'll get folic acid here and I'll get iron here. I'll get XYZ. Generally, you're going to be able to get an, an all-in-one um, multivitamin 
uh, that's prenatal uh, for women who are trying to get pregnant or who are pregnant already. Okay, and folic acid is really the the big one there, um, and omega threes as well are something that you want to be taking care of uh, prior to pregnancy and then and then during pregnancy as well, um, particularly like. DHA in particular for like uh, the uh, brain development is something that is incredibly important. Um, so that's something that that comes in there as well. But they're just some of the basics to to start with when considering nutrition before pregnancy. Yeah, and obviously, like when we're talking about like a multivitamin or any different nutrients within the diet, like we generally favor that kind of food first approach, right? So if you can get this stuff from food, happy days. However, look that's not always uh, possible, you know? And also, you know, you might not be able to put the time into thinking like, okay, well, where am I getting folic acid? Let me just work out my folic acid requirements here. And then we just work out my folic acid intake through my diet. Like you might not have the time or the skills or the ability to do that. And you might just be like, right, you know what? I have a generally good diet. You know, we've, we've talked about what the good diets look like before. Um, so I have a generally good diet, but I want to also, you know, just make sure that I've supplied myself with all of the nutrients that I need to have a healthy pregnancy to ideally uh, encourage a a healthy child being born, you know? And so something like a prenatal multivitamin is ideal. Again, you would hope that you would uh, choose a, a well, whatever certified or, you know, checked brand. Like, don't just go, Oh yeah, here, I'll just get this random, like, corner shop brand <laughs> uh, prenatal multivitamin because there are some nutrients of concern especially during pregnancy which we'll talk about in, in a second um but you also just want to make sure that you're you're supplying them in the right amount you know you're not going overboard because that can also lead to toxicity or what's often called during the like pregnancy uh teratogenesis which is like the effectively the killing if you will of the child because of nutrients or a medication or whatever you know um and that is important to understand and not to like you know scaremonger or anything like that most of them are just harmless nutrients it's not going to be you know a, a big deal unless you maybe like mega dose one or two of them you know um but there are some nutrients of concern that again we'll talk about um so yeah gary what's next so we're, we're, we're well prepared for pregnancy. We've been thinking about this six months beforehand. You know, we've, you know, maybe we started exercising or we've really continued our exercise, you know, program. We started really thinking about our diet. You know, we're eating a healthy diet. We're eating a balanced diet. You know, we've got our body composition under control. You know, it's, you know, it's not excessively lean. It's not excessively fat. We're in a good space with it. We feel good. We have a regular cycle. All of that stuff is, is dialed in. We think we're in really good health. We're kind of going, right now i'm really starting to be ready for pregnancy and well look it happens right so we're pregnant now day one what are we thinking (laughs) firstly congratulations what a glorious moment (laughs) so i suppose one of the the biggest things um that that comes up a lot and it's probably one of the most important things when considering diet is this idea that you're eating for two okay uh a lot a lot of women will say it um a lot of people 
I mean, like for example, women that are maybe looking after their diet and being a little bit more careful, other people will say it to them, you know, oh, you know, you're eating for two girl, you know, have, have a bit more, have, you know, you need to eat up, etc. Um, and and just, that's just right there, like, look, that's an evolutionary advantage, uh, advantageous thing for society yeah. to do. If you're thinking, all right, we only have a certain amount of food and, oh, there's a pregnant woman in the tribe. Like, yeah, you're eating for two here, here here's some more, you know? So <laughs> it's evolutionarily conserved. However, it's not necessarily true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like naturally, on, like in the absence of like controlled research, like how are you to know exactly how much weight someone should gain? So it, it's absolutely understandable that someone would be, would be advised to eat more. Um, but it, it is a bit of a, it's, it's, it's something that I, I don't want to say you have to be careful with, but there are risks of in, in both directions. So when you think about the surplus that is required, we'll start there. Um, obviously, not all, we're not expecting that all pregnant women should track their calories or anything, but it just gives you a rough idea. Okay. So generally in the first trimester and in the first trimester, really like often you're, you're not even like going to notice a bump. You're not going to have massive changes in body weight or anything. Uh, this is very early stages of pregnancy and you probably don't need much of a change in your calories at this point in time. Okay. Um, there's not that much going on that you would require a massive change in calories unless you were previously maybe in a deficit or something like that. Um, so we can just say that that's maybe around maintenance roughly. Then as you move into the second trimester, you're usually going to need somewhere between maybe 200 to 350 extra calories per day. Okay. So that let's say it's, let's just go with 300, take that across the week. That's an extra 2,100 calories per week. Okay. So that's going to be, um, something that is, you know, a fairly, you know, generic recommendation because you have to consider here as well, you know, maybe some women have stopped work at this point potentially, or maybe they've massively cut down their physical activity. So there are obviously other changes that would modify your energy output, but overall somewhere between that kind of 200 to 350 extra calories is probably sufficient during that time. And then in the third trimester, somewhere between 300 and 450 um, is probably where you need to be in terms of extra calories. And then in the final weeks, you, you mightn't even need those extra calories, okay? But generally third trimester as a whole, somewhere between 300 and 450 extra calories per day. So it's actually not that much, you know? Um, I think a lot of people would probably think it's, it's more, like it's very clear that you're not eating for two. Like let's say your maintenance calories were, I don't know, let's say 2,200 and now you're eating an extra 350. You know, you're talking about a, a 15 to 20% increase in caloric intake as opposed to a 100, 100% increase. Like I know people don't literally mean eating for two, but some people do take it um, that far for sure. And, and obviously the caloric intake relates very much so to the change in body weight, okay? So this depends on where you start. And this is a really important thing to consider. So if you were normal weight before pregnancy, so you're in, within a healthy enough BMI range, you had no reason to uh, think that you were you know, overweight or underweight, you're generally looking at somewhere between maybe 10 to 15 kilos um, of body weight gain. Okay, so 25 to 35 pounds, let's just say 10 to 15 kilos. Somewhere between there is a reasonable uh, amount of weight gain. If you were underweight, you probably should gain more than that. Okay, um, so if you, for example, you're listening to this podcast, you just came out of a, 
bikini competition, let's say, and you were super lean and you managed to get pregnant, then you probably want to be gaining more. Uh, and that's actually something that people tend to be aware of, I think, in, in the fitness community, which is good in that, like the majority of the time when people get really lean, they do it for short periods of time and they appreciate at least these days and among our listenership, I would say they appreciate that there's a certain amount of weight they need to regain to just get back to good health, you know? Um, so you can, you can think of that as being like a, a similar thing here where there's a certain amount of, uh, weight gain that needs to take place to just get you to a, a relatively normal state of health, state of body fat, et cetera, yourself. Um, and then the extra weight, uh, on top of that. And then finally, if you were overweight or obese, prior to becoming pregnant, then obviously there's less of a need for you to continue gaining weight because we have to appreciate that if you're obese, you have additional energy stores that are already available. Um, and there are other risks associated with pushing that weight gain further and potentially dealing with the metabolic complications of that extra weight. So recommendations, roughly BMI over 30, uh, generally you want to get gain less than nine kilos of body weight okay or no more than nine kilos of body weight i should say so there is a difference in recommendations and again if you were if you wanted to be particular with that you'd speak to your doctor about that because body composition varies you know maybe you're a very very muscular person or maybe you're a very very frail person um, those types of things might change the recommendations or maybe you had a unique nutritional circumstance leading up to your pregnancy and maybe you were really overeating for a certain period of time or really undereating for a certain period of time. Um, all those things might change the recommendations that you're given. So do speak to your doctor there. Um, and then I suppose just because I mentioned it, do note that insulin sensitivity is going to decrease. So you're going to become more insulin resistant. Um, and as a result, glucose is going to increase. Um, this is to some degree uh, normal during pregnancy, but can become excessive. Okay. So in a healthy pregnancy, the mother is able to still create enough insulin uh, to you know, trigger the appropriate uptake of glucose from the blood uh, into muscle and fat cells and maintains them within a relatively safe range. So although there might be more insulin resistance, you're able to compensate to some degree for hyperinsulinemia. Now in gestational diabetes, uh, this is, is not the case. So you end up in a position where you're now uh, diabetic during pregnancy, um, in a state of insulin resistance with hyperglycemia, high blood glucose. And that's something that will be dealt with most often medically, um, along with dietary changes, but you know, often there'll be metformin prescribed or something like that. Because again, as we said, it's such a sensitive period. Um, so for that reason, you know, you don't want to go crazy overboard trying to, you know, eat all around you to eat for two, especially if your body fat was already high or you had, you know, pre-existing uh, poor metabolic health. So uh, that's kind of, that's kind of a summary, I guess, of the the overall considerations as as we we get into pregnancy. Yeah. So we really want to think of all. First of all, okay, we want to have a an adequate food supply. You know, where like it's like that kind of Goldilocks story. You know, it's like not too much, not too little, just right. Right. You know, again, this is obviously easier to do if you have been, you know, aware of your nutritional needs before pregnancy. But obviously, you know, a lot of people are not. So you just have to take it as it comes and learn that stuff almost on the fly when you are pregnant, you know. Um, but either way, you know, we're, we're talking about a small surplus, right? And obviously, again, as you said, the consequence of that is that influences our weight gain. Now, the weight gain, 
what we're thinking about this is yes okay there's going to be fat accumulation like that's you want that you want to have extra fuel available for feeding the child right but the weight gain is also coming from the child right it's also coming from the developing child Uh, and people sometimes just forget that because they're like oh i'm a step on the scales and i'm up whatever you know five pounds or whatever it's like yeah like the fetus has to weigh something you know like you can you can kind of forget that you know it's it's not it's not just fat gain it's not just whatever like the, the fetus does weigh something you know like i was an 11 pound baby like a fucking a big old baby um but that's something to take into account because i know i've had a lot of clients that are like oh no i don't know if i'm i'm gaining way too fast too little especially in the health and fitness populations like you see weight changes on the scale they're like oh no 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 i can't i can't do that i should be you know i should be at this this level of weight or whatever and it's like no you need to take into account that there's another human growing with inside you so keep that in mind right and and obviously this is not just a you know cosmetic thing that we're talking about this is related to you know what we'll call it the cardiometabolic stuff as well you know it does have a bearing on your insulin sensitivity your even in your blood lipids different things like that and while that's okay like we said earlier on that's okay for you or I here, we're thinking of like, oh, that's the next you know, year, two years. Like so a lot of this stuff is cumulative. Who cares? We can kind of, you know, spend some time and get this stuff under control. It's more um, time constrained, I suppose you'd say, if we're talking about pregnancy. And it's more time constrained because, yeah, okay, pregnancy occurs over whatever, nine months or so. But it's also time constrained because this is actually affecting the child as it is developing, you know? So it's going to happen during that time period but it's going to have effects likely for that child throughout their lifetime you know um, and that both goes for undernutrition and overnutrition. so we want to try to get things right wherever possible you know there's also other recommendations we could make in terms of well you want to have this much carbohydrates you want to have this much protein or whatever but ultimately you just want to eat a well-balanced diet you know make sure your protein uh, consideration is taken care of now that does have some challenges and we might talk about those in a second but protein is taken care of and then you're eating some you know good carbohydrates and fat intake as well right and ideally and we'll, again we'll talk about this in, in a second you want to be focusing with that fat intake on those omega-3s now there's some challenges and barriers to that and um, but like gary said earlier on we really want to get that dha in because that's really helping with that childhood uh, brain development why should you say childhood that fetal uh, brain development so obviously i know a lot of people want their child to be smart you know like that would be ideal especially as the economy moves more and more towards like a knowledge economy you don't want your child to just be average intelligent i don't think anyone is going to go you know what? i actually really just hope my child is you know distinctly average in every regard you know <laughs> like yeah you want them to be you know healthy you know which is i suppose the average but no one's going like i don't want them to be exceptional at anything you know so if we can encourage you know our bias uh fantastic greatness then yeah we want to do that right um so there's a few things but there are also some challenges just in terms of the basic kind of setup around nutrition so gary what are what are the challenges around nutrition or at least some of the challenges around nutrition and pregnancy yeah, there are quite a few challenges. And, and one of the things that emerges in the first trimester, which can be quite difficult to deal with, is nausea and vomiting. Okay, so there's a certain degree of nausea and vomiting 
that is normal uh, during the first trimester in particular typically will go away by the second trimester uh, it can become more severe in which case it's referred to as hyperemesis gravidarum uh, typically we're going to be admitted to hospital and managed appropriately for that because there can be uh, complications like if you're like vomiting loads you can have uh, electrolyte disturbances you can be severely dehydrated etc so that's something you've managed medically okay um, but nausea and vomiting is obviously something that is difficult to deal with especially because you're often dealing with um, food aversions and general digestive upset during this period of time so that's obviously going to make it difficult for you to you know eat your normal healthy balanced diet um, you know, especially if you're not, if you're, if you're vomiting and you're getting aversions to certain foods, like looking, looking down at your normal chicken, broccoli and rice that you might've eaten previously, like it mightn't be very exciting for you. You might be looking for things that are just, you know, easy to eat, easy to digest and, and maybe very tasty or, or what you happen to be craving. So, um, totally understandable, but that is a challenge. Okay. So nausea and vomiting early on in pregnancy is a challenge. Trimester two. Before we actually we go on to that, with those food aversions, this is a really interesting one uh, as well. Like you see, women in general tend to have more food aversions than guys, right? And this is, you know, it's, it's hypothesized to be uh, an evolutionary, uh, you know, whatever, an evolutionary kept thing because it actually potentially keeps you and the developing fetus safer, right? So during pregnancy, a lot of women will have like protein aversions, you know, they'll be like, Oh, I used to eat this food, like say eggs, for example, you know, uh, you provide an egg to a non-pregnant woman. They're like, yeah, actually I love eggs, love eating them. Um, but then all of a sudden they're pregnant and now they're kind of like, Oh, the texture of eggs, the, the thought of it, you know, it's disgusting. Like they get this food aversion. Right. And that's thought to be, you know, evolutionarily conserved because, you know, some of these foods as we'll talk about in a second, they potentially are, introducing pathogens into the the mother and thus into the the fetus so you know that's potentially leading to uh, like a spontaneous abortion basically right uh, or a miscarriage right so we need to consider that that you can have food aversions to foods that we ideally would like to include in the diet you can also have uh, food aversions to protein in general and again this is thought to or it's at least it's hypothesized to be because you know Ammonia is a byproduct of nitrogen metabolism, protein metabolism, and ammonia is not great for cells in general, right? Um, but it's particularly not great for a developing fetus, right? Like they don't have the same, we'll call it metabolism, that you know, a fully developed human does, right? They're not able to deal with that like a fully developed human would be able to, right? So there's a, an evolutionary impetus to say, okay, well, this is why maybe you have a little bit of a protein aversion, right? Now, the difficulty here is you still need protein. You need protein for yourself, right? That should be obvious enough, but also that child needs protein. Protein is much more than just, uh, you know, a, a building block. Yeah, okay, we're thinking, okay, we're building a child here. You're going to need building blocks, but it's also a signaling molecule. Right. It's also providing a signal in terms of like we, we know that in regard to muscle building, we think of that mTOR signaling, we think of leucine. OK, that's the, the muscle building trigger here. Um, but it does also have other uh, signaling effects within the body. So we need protein. And this is one of the hardest things for pregnant women to overcome. Getting sufficient protein in while dealing with nausea and vomiting in general but then also dealing with food aversions, right? Um, and as we'll talk about in a second, there's certain foods that you might be like, okay, actually, I think I could eat that, 
but we might not want to eat that because of other uh, constraints. So this is something, look, if you're thinking about getting pregnant or you're currently pregnant, you're probably going to be well aware of this. You're going to be like, all right, I'm going to have to deal with these food aversions. I'm going to have to deal with these different, you know, desires for food. And that's going to potentially change my plans. I, I'm thinking I'm going to have this perfect ideal diet and you might not. Right. Um, so just keep that in mind. Absolutely. And then as you move into the second trimester, you know, you're, you're still dealing with those cravings and appetite. Okay. So this is where we start the cravings come in and, and like very often when we'll start to, you know, crave things that they might've never eaten before, or they wouldn't normally eat. They might be odd combinations of foods and things like that. And it can affect everyone to the same degree, but it can even, you know, manifest as pica, which is basically where you crave non-food items. Okay. So you want to eat non-food items. Um, and so you got, so you've got both weird and odd food combinations. So like if you were, if you were a trainer and let's say you were extending your scope of practice to recommend what a pregnant woman should eat, um, you might find that she has uh, quite strange tastes. So that, that can happen for sure during pregnancy. So that's obviously difficult because, you know, you, you might have an idea of the types of meals that you, that are healthy and that you normally cook. You might have a list of like healthy meals that you normally cook during the week. And suddenly you've got all these, odd cravings and you've got this large increase in appetite and it might be difficult for you to you know construct meals appropriately so that can be a challenge for sure and that does extend into the third trimester as well where we have obviously increase in energy needs we're dealing with weight gain it's on like the cravings and stuff it can be even weirder than people imagine like people crave like dirt and stuff like that you know like they're like oh i just want to eat some dirt or sand or whatever you know and it's like you look at that and you go what the fuck is going on there like some people say that it's you know potentially related to mineral deficiencies or nutrient deficiencies and like obviously if you're craving dirt just don't eat dirt like it's not it's not going to be beneficial for you or the developing fetus but do talk to your doctor about that you know because they could potentially say like okay well maybe there is a mineral deficiency here or you know we need to further investigate certain things you know like you might be craving i don't know dirt as a way of getting magnesium in in the diet you know your maybe your diet is just low in magnesium and as a result you're craving to eating dirt you know again they're weirder things um that you might not think of initially but if you are experiencing this stuff like just talk to your doctor like they've probably heard it all before seen it all before and they're going to be able to recommend something or at least refer you on to someone that will be able to help or help just don't eat dirt <laughs> don't eat dirt that's the takeaway um, and I, as you enter the third trimester so as i said obviously at this point in time the you're going to start noticing more of those effects that we noticed previously so for example the pressure um, of the fetus amniotic fluids etc the pressure of that pressing up into the abdominal cavity um, and impacting uh, your ability to, you know, have healthy digestion, digestion, I guess you could say. So this is the point where you might have more reflux or heartburn. And this can be a challenge because of, uh, you know, generally reflux is going to be worse with larger meals. So you need to satisfy increased energy needs, but you also might be able to have large meals. So as a result, you might be, you know, trying to space your meals throughout the day. Uh, you might have, instead of the three very large very large meals, maybe you know you, you might have normally been having six smaller meals might be appropriate during this period of time. So what you're trying to do is find that sweet, sweet spot where you can meet your energy needs, but you're not eating so much at a given point in time that you're dealing with a lot of reflux. 
And obviously that becomes important at nighttime as well. You know, if you're trying to sleep and suddenly you're lying horizontal, that's already an increase in risk of reflux. So if you have a very large meal before bed, uh, that again could be something that, that uh, pops up its head. So that's something that's uh, very important when it comes to the third trimester in particular. Now, there are certain foods that you are recommended to avoid. And Paddy kind of touched on this already in terms of like the potential for pathogens and things like that. Um, and generally you're going to be over, people will be over cautious in terms of recommendations here, just because of how sensitive uh, the developing fetus is. And as a result, the risk uh, that's associated with any pathogens. So even if it was just like a one in a thousand chance or a one in 10,000 chance that having this food would lead to complications, most women are going to say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm going to avoid that, you know, um, just because of, of how sensitive an environment it is. So on just on this, like some of these things, like maybe not on this list, but some of these things you actually still need to be considering when you're breastfeeding and when the child is you know, starting to be introduced to more solid foods, for example, like you're not supposed to feed honey to children, right? Uh, like to babies, like, People do it all the time because they're just unaware of it, but you're actually not supposed to do it. Like it potentially is deadly to the child. Because again, we have to think that that child isn't fully developed. Yes, it's outside the womb, but ideally humans would gestate for like 12 to 16 months. You know, that would be the ideal gestation time. But as you can imagine, that child will be fucking huge. (laughs) Imagine trying to carry that thing around, right? Because we've been in this evolutionary race between, okay, we need to develop this child as much as possible well in in the womb but if we develop it past a certain point that woman is not going to be able to give birth to this child now we do have like stuff like cesarean section so we can overcome that to some extent and but obviously that's not an ideal situation either right and so you have to consider some of the stuff beyond just the, the the pregnancy window itself you also want to consider it during the breastfeeding window if you are breastfeeding and then also some of the stuff you need to consider when you're introducing the child to solid foods as well. Yeah. And that is an important one. So honey counterindicated. Okay. So if you're a baby, you know, don't be eating honey. And all, all our babies listen to this podcast, wait, wait a couple of years, then you can have some honey. All right. Um, but other than that, unpasteurized milk products and moldy cheeses, um, raw and undercooked meat and eggs, uh, I wonder now with this kind of the, the liver king trend and everyone being like, oh, eating loads of raw meat, will we see spike in <laughs> pathogens associated with that? Just, just on that as well, like excessive liver intake as well is yeah. potentially teratogenic to the, the fetus as well. So it potentially could, again, cause that miscarriage because of vitamin A toxicity. Again, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so you can imagine someone listening to liver king uh and going yeah you know what actually i'm just going to load of raw liver for my entire pregnancy don't do that that it would be very uh counterindicated <laughs> don't do that you know we start we started cooking food it was a great invention <laughs> we don't need to go back eating everything raw okay some foods can be eaten safely raw obviously like sushi is a classic example especially in a non-pregnant state but if you're pregnant just be more careful. Okay. So unpasteurized milk products, as we said, moldy cheeses, raw and undercooked meat and eggs, smoked fish, uh, tuna, swordfish, marlin, shark, 
you know, I, I know all of our Irish ladies are big fans of shark, <laughs> raw shellfish, and then excessive liver intake. Okay, so there are some of the things that you would want to avoid. Uh, there may be others. Uh, yeah, like that's not that's not an exhaustive list. And some of them, like you're like, oh well, like I really like smoked fish. It's the only way I'm going to get my like fish intake in, which we do recommend eating fish yeah. throughout your pregnancy. But it is one of those things where it's like this isn't technically you could argue it's not fully cooked. Um, so there's potential there for, you know, pathogens and stuff to be introduced to the body. Um, so ideally, you would choose another cooking method for your, your salmon, for example, rather than just having like smoked salmon. Or if you're going to have smoked salmon, cook it then <laughs> as well, um, which probably defeats the purpose of like behind smoked salmon. But alas, that's, that's what we have to deal with. But there's more, Gary, unfortunately. Yeah, there are, and and there are there are more foods that would be uh, avoided in terms of like just just those specific foods that we're talking about because of like cultural differences and things like that. You know, like we put in like shark, raw shellfish, etc. Like there are very likely to be other foods that we just don't consider because it's Ireland and you know we lead a fairly standard, basic, boring diet most of the time. Or I'm Irish anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those like some of those as well. Like they're being or you're being told not to eat those food because they're higher up in the food chain. So as a result, they've bioaccumulated potentially stuff like heavy metals, you know? So we're going, okay, well, we don't want to expose the child to a load of heavy metals. And again, this is a hard one because, you know, you might be like, all right, I need to get some fish in and I'm going to choose tuna. And we're going, no, like you can eat some tuna, but ideally we wouldn't be eating it because again, it tends to have that bioaccumulation of these heavy metals, which are not great for a developing fetus. But as Gary said, some of these things, we also have to consider the cultural or the socioeconomic environment as well. And there might be other foods that you're regularly eating, which you just should not be eating during pregnancy, but we're, there's just not just the, in the general recommended or the general avoid category, I should say, um, of all these like different health organizations or whatever. So again, it bears just looking at your diet, talking to your medical providers, looking at the different, you know, uh, like the websites or whatever, the different government organizations and going, well, what does this say? And why are they saying this? Oh, that's actually a type of food that I eat, even though it's not on the list, I'm still eating something that would fall under that same category. In five to 10 years, all these recommendations are going to be updated because like the, the epidemiologists are probably like going through being like, why are people eating raw testicles what the what is going on <laughs> since when is this a thing <laughs> all these people in um, north america and europe suddenly consuming all these odd foods <laughs> they're not that odd gary like we've been eating those for thousands of years it's odd that we don't eat them yeah but i'm saying in pregnancy you're gonna you're gonna get your your wife to consume bull testicles have you, eaten, have you ever eaten testicles no, I have not. And they're just full of water. It's the most disgusting thing ever. You'll just eat yeah. it and they'll be like, that just, he just nutted in me. Yuck. Absolutely no intention of doing so. Um, anyway, uh, the other things that are probably a bit more normal, things that people would generally be aware of, would be caffeine and alcohol. Okay, so starting with caffeine, a little bit of uncertainty here in terms of like what the threshold is. Most women will just stop consuming caffeine totally because like, look, I don't love coffee that much that I, I'm going to tolerate any increase in risk. Um, it is recommended to limit it at 200 milligrams. So theoretically, you know, you could have a coffee and a couple of bits of chocolate, but I think a lot of people will just cut it out completely because they're like, look, I don't want to tolerate the risk. I don't want to worry about how much caffeine I'm consuming. 
maybe there's differences in sensitivity between people. Uh, so a lot of people just cut it out. Um, generally, if you're consuming a lot of caffeine, you would increase your risk of things like miscarriage, um, potentially, reduce, potentially reduce birth rate um, and stillbirth as well. So uh, overall, most women will decide that, you know what, I don't want that risk. So I'm just gonna cut out the coffee. Um, often as well, there, there's kind of a, tre uh, a trend that you'd observe where during the first, a woman's first pregnancy, really careful, like hyper aware of all this stuff. And if she has loads of kids, like by the end, she's just like, oh, fuck it, I can't, I can't be sticking to all these guidelines and a lot more liberal with what she does. Um, but obviously that varies between people. But overall, caffeine, totally, uh, definitely required to limit it under 200 milligrams as per the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Uh, but a lot of people will just cut it out or might be advised to cut it out. So um, one of those things as well, like chocolate can be surprisingly high in caffeine. Like if you actually look at like the caffeine content of some of the like major brands of chocolate, you'd be like, Jesus Christ, this whole bar has like 200 milligrams, you know? And like, that's one of those things that again, you're just going to have to deal with because if you're a pregnant woman who has a food craving for a load of chocolate, and you're like, right, actually, what's the caffeine content of this? You know, but it's also something that people should just be aware of in general, because people will do stuff like, oh, I just have a few squares of chocolate before I go to bed. And in general, that's, you know, it's not going to be a huge issue, but maybe you're caffeine sensitive. Maybe you are someone that has already had a high caffeine intake throughout the day. Maybe you got this, I know, speciality fucking chocolate bar and you didn't realize that it actually has twice as much caffeine content uh, as yeah, the new, usual chocolate you do so it is something that can just affect your sleep but obviously in relation to uh, pregnancy again we want to limit caffeine wherever possible you know it's just not like it's not additive to the pregnancy it's not going to increase the the health of the mother or the developing fetus so it's one of those things where it's like you don't need this you know you might feel like you need it you know but you don't need it uh to survive so potentially cutting it out is a is a good idea absolutely and while we talk about caffeine and say look there's some that's tolerable etc alcohol no it's just a big no-go um generally like almost everyone will recommend just zero tolerance like no amount is safe um you know it doesn't mean that maybe you only found out you were pregnant six or eight weeks and you had a drink you know it doesn't mean that there's a massive increase in risk but overall zero tolerance uh, ideally on alcohol during pregnancy increased risk of um Multi, many different complications to be honest many different birth defects fetal alcohol syndrome um and just yeah just, there's just a lot of risks associated with alcohol and pregnancy so it's generally a zero tolerance thing same with smoking um it's it's not necessarily a dietary factor but smoking again zero tolerance um increased risk of many complications during pregnancy and also unfortunately longer term uh, complications as well um health risks related to like respiratory diseases cardiovascular disease multiple other things so that's something that is just a zero tolerance not that complicated um protein intake if we just skip over excess sugar we should just mention that one as well yeah. because right. excess sugar intake you know it's less than ideal again we talked about this just previously in terms of you now blood glucose levels we want to be managing that stuff we want to manage our body composition but Again, we can increase our blood sugar levels by consuming a lot of, we'll say, easily digested, easily absorbed carbohydrates. And again, in a general healthy person, 
No, not a big deal. If you, Gary, you're like, oh, like, I know you like jellies, right? If you're just like, yeah, man, I had a whole packet of jellies there, you know, maybe there was, I don't know, let's say 50 grams of just sugar or like very simple carbohydrates in that. And you're like, yeah, man, I, I had that. I'm like, yeah, it's no big deal in the grand scheme of things, you know, like not a big deal. But if you're pregnant, like you have to remember that your body is basically pumping blood and the nutrients from that blood or in that blood, I should say, into that child, right? And that child has to deal with that. And that child might not be able to, at the, the developmental stage that it's at, might not be able to deal with that uh, bolus of sugar at that time. So we want to keep a more stable um, blood sugar level for the, the fetus, but also we want to ideally not get gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or something like that and eating high intakes of sugar are potentially going to bias us towards getting those issues right and um, there are other things like some of this stuff is suggested that like eating a high sugar diet during pregnancy it can actually influence the taste preference of the child as they develop yeah, like both during the pregnancy but then into their childhood and adulthood and um, so that child might have like you, you basically have a harder time than dealing with that child because you want to introduce all these nice foods it's like oh here's your carrot puree or whatever that you're giving to the child and that kid wants sugar that kid, you've basically done the whole pregnancy encouraging that child <laughs> to have a taste preference for high sugar uh, foods because of the, the foods that you've been eating basically um or at least the environment that you've created by the foods that you're, you've been eating so you make it like your own life harder when you're actually dealing with that child but obviously that also makes that child's life harder where they have this very strong taste preference for sugary foods right and um, ideally we want to minimize the amount of like highly processed foods that were contained or that were uh, eating within the diet and um, but you still can eat foods that are you know higher in sugar like i'm not going to say like oh don't eat fruit you know like if you do have a uh, a craving for something that's a little bit higher in sugar, a little bit sweeter, whatever, like fruit and um, stuff like that, that's going to be beneficial for you because again, you can still get some, some sugary sweetness, but you're not giving the baby a, a huge bolus of sugar to deal with. Yeah. So in summary there, keep the sugar low, but don't worry too much if it's like healthy choices, so to speak with sugar in them, you know, it's not, it's not that much of a big deal. Um, and fruit is, absolutely uh, approved triage approved so eat your fruit you'll be grand um so go going forward then some of the like we've talked about there like some of the things you want to avoid but then there are things that you want to absolutely be part of your diet and we've touched on some of these already protein intake is is very important for child growth you know patty's uh mother had no shortage um, of protein in her diet it seems uh, so obviously it's very important it's no different than um no different than, you know, protein for any of us, you know, it's contributing to our muscle mass, our bone strength, etc., um, And it's similar for child growth. So you want adequate protein intake, as we said previously, there might be barriers to getting in your protein. Um, and that's fair enough in terms of food aversions, protein aversions, etc. But overall, trying to maintain protein in your diet, getting it at each meal, like we normally recommend, uh, would be advisable for sure yeah and just on that again that extends into childhood as well like your parents saying to you like oh you need to eat your vegetables so you grow up big and strong that's an absolute lie right you need to eat your protein so you grow up big and strong like that's the that's the main determining factor you can look at it through developing civilizations throughout time like the 
civilizations with higher protein intake like it's funny like if you ever read uh like history and you're like oh this this tribe came from this other area and they were all like much taller than the tribe that were living in this like sedentary society it's because the sedentary society had a low protein intake because they were mainly like agriculturalists farmers like you know they're eating basically just crops grain that kind of stuff whereas the nomads or whoever the invading people coming in they were out there the chad like herding cattle and eating horses and whatever fucking else but basically they had a high protein intake and as a result they were generally taller people right and you see this as well throughout the like again development of civilizations where oh we started eating more protein and all of a sudden populations just started getting taller started getting bigger so that's the major key determinant there's only one society that i'm aware of that that hasn't been the case and that's india so even though they've increased their protein intake they haven't seen a concomitant uh increase in height and that's hypothesized to be because of the disease and pathogen burden that is in india you know so that's one of those things where it's like they aren't able to overcome that so it's, it's more of a, a medical issue that needs to be dealt, dealt with before they can see the the benefits of that increase in protein intake right but across the board like if you want tall children you want really robust children eat your protein, get the child to eat their protein and they will, they will grow up big and strong. None of this fucking eat your vegetables for a big, strong, but no, no, that's just not the case. <laughs> eat your protein. Um, similarly, uh, get your omega-3s in. We already mentioned it, you know, but uh, omega-3s um, important. You can obviously get them through uh, fish in the diet as a primary source um, or uh, additionally uh, supplement okay obviously if you're you know vegan or vegetarian all this becomes a little bit more complicated during pregnancy because you have to be a bit more careful um but uh, omega-3 you know an algae uh, omega-3 supplement uh, would you know serve you well here so uh, omega-3s get them in vitamin a uh, really important as well during pregnancy uh, but as we said you know excess can potentially be harmful, potentially be ter teratogenic. So we mentioned things like uh, raw liver in the diet or even cooked liver in the diet. Um, if you're eating foods like that that are very, very rich in vitamin A uh, in the first uh, 60 days or so of pregnancy, that can potentially be teratogenic. So that's something you want to be aware of as well. Sometimes people will do things like uh, assume that more nutrients are always better. So you might want to optimize your state of health and you go out and you get a a deal of supplements and you got this multivitamin and it happens to be super high in vitamin A and you're double dosing, you know, you just want to be more careful of any practices like that during pregnancy. Uh, vitamin D uh, as well could be supplemented, could be through sunlight, uh, could be through the diet. But again, it's something that is important during pregnancy. And the big one uh, that comes up a lot is folic acid. Okay. So before pregnancy, ideally 400 micrograms per day of fo folic acid. And then during pregnancy and when breastfeeding, about 600 micrograms per day um, from foods or uh, from vitamins. Okay. Very most often women will be advised to take a folic acid supplement. Um, I think often they're common 400 microgram doses, um, but it, it does depend on that. I think there are some varying uh, recommendations and dosing uh, for different medical conditions and things like that. So, you know, again, you speak to your doctor, that's generally something that's actively recommended by them. Uh, but ideally before pregnancy, you want that to be in place as well. Folic acid is probably one of the most important 
nutrients when it comes to things like neurotube defects. So early on in pregnancy, you're getting the development of the central nervous system um, and you get things like the uh, development of the spinal cord, the brain, the closing of the spaces around there. And you can get uh, some defects in that uh, as a result of the absence of folic acid. So something that's really important to consider in the diet. Yeah, a lot of foods these days are actually fortified yeah. with folic acid, especially like grains and stuff. Like you ever see like, you know, I know Kellogg's cereal or whatever, they'll be like, oh, fortified with all these nutrients. Like one of those major nutrients that it is fortified with is folic acid. And um, so that kind of stuff is really beneficial in pregnancy well pre-pregnancy first of all because you do want to make sure that you're like you you use folic acid as well you know or folate or tetrahydrofolate and stuff like you use it for different processes within your body we won't get into all of them um so it's beneficial for you as a human but then also it's as gary said really beneficial for stuff like neural tube defects we want to ideally not get a neural tube defect as a developing fetus um so ensuring that your folic acid intake is high enough is a good idea now this does not mean that you megadose it again because you know excess folate is also potentially uh, an issue it's not as far as i'm aware it's not teratogenic well i presume a, cer a certain dose it's gonna, it's gonna be teratogenic like anything at a certain dose is going to be uh, an issue but this is one of those things where it's like we don't actually need excess like excessive intake of this to get the benefits so again just stick with that kind of 400 to 600 you should be good to go yeah, and then there's calcium, about a gram, 1,000 milligram of calcium a day is probably what you need. Um, that's not that difficult to achieve if you're eating a kind of a mixed uh, diet, especially if you're consuming dairy products and things like that. Um, if you're vegan or vegetarian, again, you might need to uh, be a little bit more particular uh, there with getting your calcium in. Iodine as well, really important for uh, child intelligence. We already mentioned that we want to have the intelligent uh, superior children uh, if we can. So <laughs> iodine, excuse me, is something that uh, is important to get in the diet as well. And uh, iodine is actually one of those nutrients of concern in the Western world. So a lot of people are not eating enough iodine. And we've talked about this previously in relation to just female nutrients of concern in general. Um, but iodine is one of those nutrients of concern. So ideally, guys, you're getting your iodine in. We're not going to go over all the ways to get iodine in here. We, we covered that in a previous episode and you can look it up online, but try to get your iodine in. Yeah, if you listen to the episode on nutrients of concern for women, we covered a lot more detail on these micronutrients and where to get them. Um, so we won't go over all that, but iodine, yeah, something that's important. I'm not actually sure if there's a specific recommendation of intake for iodine during pregnancy, but I, get it. I didn't see it either. Yeah. Um, and then iron as well is important. So I uh, recommended that you get between 30 and 60 kilograms of elemental iron. And that can, that again is, is likely to be achievable within the diet. If you're consuming a mixed uh, diet and you're doing, as we said, getting your protein in, you're getting your protein from animal sources. You're probably going to get a decent amount of iron along with that. Um, but obviously again, vegan and vegetarian, you need to be a little bit more careful. Uh, you also want to reduce your salt intake ideally, or keep your salt intake, um, on the lower end especially if it's higher, um, that becomes very important for things like, as we said, blood pressure management, for example, uh, but you don't want uh, to have a super high salt uh, intake during pregnancy. Um, and that becomes important, or it, I guess it's kind of baked into the rest of our recommendations. We said, you know, don't be consuming lots of ultra processed foods, try to maintain a healthful diet. If you're doing that, your salt is probably going to be in a good place. Um, a lot of salt in the diet tends to come from 
uh, ultra processed foods and people, you know, eating out and things like that. So if you're not eating a lot of ultra processed foods, your salt intake is probably in a good place unless you're adding a lot of salt to your meals. Um, and then I suppose the final recommendation when thinking about all these considerations that we've talked about is to try to make it simple for yourself. So focus on building, you know, daily menus, if you can, of nutrient dense foods. Uh, it's not about trying to eat perfectly. If you have like a rough menu of like, right, these are like my breakfast options. These are my lunch options. These are my dinner options. And, you know, you've, you've taken into consideration, that, you know, you want to get your protein intake and your omega threes, et cetera. And you have a rough kind of menu or menu options then you're not, you know, beholden to a meal plan or like strict calorie tracking or anything like that. You ideally don't want that. Pregnancy is a difficult enough time without adding loads of nutrition stressors that you need to worry about. Um, but having a, a rough plan of action with options, I think, is something that's probably wise. 100%. And then we've got the final, final part of pregnancy, and that's the post-pregnancy period. Um, and this encompasses a lot of different things. And obviously, look, we're not going to get into every single nuance here. But one thing I do want to touch on is breastfeeding. What should we do with that, Gary? Is it just a case of we still need to eat more? Is it a case of we should just focus on fat loss? Because I know a lot of people do, like they go through their pregnancy and they're like, right, I've gained some weight. I want to get my pre-pregnancy bod back. So I'm going to focus on you know, eating a calorie deficit, but I'm also breastfeeding. Like, what's the story there? What, what should we be focusing on? Yeah, so breastfeeding does uh, increase overall um, energy output. So it does still, uh, to some degree, probably require uh, additional calories. But I'm not sure if uh, what the specific recommendations <coughs> are there in terms of modifying caloric intake, because obviously a lot of things have just gone 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 on. You know, you suddenly don't have the fetus and the uterus etc all blown up and to be carrying around with you um but you do still have breastfeeding which is an energy intensive process that's ongoing i'm just not sure of the specific recommendations there. Yeah, as far as i'm aware i don't think there are specific recommendations it is basically just to i'm sure i'm sure there are to be honest you know but as far as i'm aware it's like eat at maintenance or slightly above maintenance and don't focus really on that kind of fat loss like that weight loss like it might it might occur as a result of it which is fine, you know, but ideally we just want to eat a well-balanced, healthy diet. That's kind of roughly in and around maintaining our weight. Now, obviously, again, it depends on how long you intend to breastfeed, like traditionally in like whatever hunter gatherer societies and stuff like women breastfed for like two years, which like in our current society seems a bit excessive. Like if you had like a, a toddler and like you were down in the park or something, you had your toddler and you had to breastfeed the toddler, like people would probably be giving you like weird looks you know <laughs> and it's already a hard enough time being a, a mother dealing with a child in, in general but if you have this two-year-old that's running around and you're like right it's time to, to breastfeed you probably get weird looks now me personally i don't give a fuck what <laughs> what other people think but it is one of those things where it's like look you do have to be aware of that in most uh, western societies nowadays it's kind of that six month mark where people start you know not breastfeeding anymore at least weaning off it so you've got basically that six month mark where you're still going or up to that six month mark where you're still going i need to still think of this as uh an energetic endeavor i still need to fuel for this breastfeeding to occur to both develop the breastfeed or the, the breast milk and then also obviously you're probably dealing with the child you're probably having to deal with sleepless nights and all the other stuff that comes along with pregnancy so that is something to also take into account but yeah i know a lot of people focus on this kind of fat loss post-pregnancy but it wouldn't be something that i would be over emphasizing like if it happens okay 
but we ideally don't want to, what would you call it? Like crash diet. You don't want to be in a position where you're like, oh yeah, I'm losing like a, a kilo per week. And like, that's just not really sustainable. And it's probably not going to be great for milk supply. Yeah. And unfortunately we should say as well here that like breastfeeding rates in, in Ireland are unfortunately very low um, compared to some other countries. I don't, I don't, don't, uh, don't hold me to this, but I, think somewhere between 30 and 40 percent is the rate of breastfeeding in ireland i think which is much lower um than than we than you would want okay so uh, it is important to just impress that point that breast is best okay so if if you can breastfeeding is is better for outcomes i don't think i was breastfed but uh i wasn't as well i know i wasn't that's what happened though that's it um but in all seriousness the breast is best there are some reasons uh, multiple reasons that women can't not all women can breastfeed um some women might need to might have other obligations that they need to take care of and that's totally fair um, and there are obviously medical reasons why some women might want to breastfeed and uh, also breastfeeding can you know you might start to breastfeed but you might develop something like mastitis or the baby's latch might be very good there are generally like uh, nurses that specialize in like breastfeeding and helping women to breastfeed appropriately um, but ideally uh, breastfeeding is best for outcomes uh, but unfortunately not all women can do it and uh, a lot of it, it has become increasingly common for uh, women to you know just plan in advance to formula feed um, so we want to challenge the formula feeding propagandists <laughs> and famous, in ireland like we do have a great dairy industry which is yeah. a lot of where like the formula feed does come from um, but and they are getting better uh, and there probably will be a stage in future where it's like you know saying breast is best is you know maybe it's not yeah but as of right now that does seem to be the the case where the scientific literature would support that breast is best there's all different kinds of growth factors different things that you know are beneficial for the child that you're just not getting in formula feed like even stuff like i, I think we've discussed it on the podcast before but you get stuff like a uh, melatonin you know like if i know a lot of people like uh will like uh, express milk and like save it for later uh, but that stuff actually does have like biological like hormones and different things in it and you could be giving your child like breast milk that you pumped in the morning which might have a slightly higher amount of cortisol which could actually make them more awake so if you give it to them at night time it might actually be encouraging them to be more wakeful rather than sleepy so stuff like that like we haven't really investigated all the different constituents of breast milk and all of the different like what would you say consequences of the breast milk throughout the day, throughout the, the months, etc. Um, so it is an interesting thing to think about, but also I can almost assure you that with medical and scientific advances, like we're going to get to a stage where they're just like, yeah, look, actually we can make the optimal human uh, feed for, for, for children, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it is like breast milk and, colostrum as well which is the, the first um expression is like remarkably complex like we we can't just say like oh we'll just match the macros and a few micros and, and we're good like as you said there's there's melatonin but there's also a lot of um, maternal antibodies and immune signals that are passed down that are really important for um immunity and immunological priming uh so they're just on that as well like that's why you're not supposed to feed children honey right because yeah, yeah. their immune system like basically the gap junctions in their uh digestive 
lining i suppose you'd say um like they're wider and that's to actually allow like immune immunoglobulins and the different components of the immune system from the mother to actually enter into the child you know and now unfortunately that means that other things can enter into the child if you know we're not careful but that's that's why we we want to have that that's why we ideally want to you know breast is best like you're basically giving your child your immune system when you breastfeed them you know and and that's just uh, an interesting thing yeah because like if you're we basically like through trying to scientifically study breast milk let's say we're basically taking on the challenge of trying to figure out every little nook and cranny to make sure that it's perfect to give to the baby whereas this breast milk that's there it's already done the job it's, it's ready to go so it's a very difficult challenge it's one that as you said like will likely be overcome but it's it's not at that point yet and i think sometimes sometimes people probably think that we're we have far more scientific knowledge than we actually do you know i think uh, that's one of the things you start to learn when you if you study um biology of any sort really but even if when you're studying nutrition you begin to realize that that there's always new things that are discovered in foods that as you go deeper and deeper down um and it's kind of like okay what's the biological relevance of this and a lot of the time there mightn't be a massive thing that's there but when it comes to breast milk and you're talking about immune factors like the immune system is is again remarkably complex and trying to put that into a powder is is a very difficult thing to do so yeah breast is best there are options uh, if that's not the case but uh yeah that's that's that um, but anyway, are there any other things that we would do in terms of, I don't know, calories, food, whatever? Like, obviously, look, this is also something that we have to consider that you just went through, well, potentially, obviously, if you're uh, a woman who has been pregnant listening to this, you just went through this event. It's nine months and a couple of months afterwards, breastfeeding. Is there anything you should be doing to, I don't know, suppose maybe you're thinking about pregnancy in future again, you know? This is one of those things, that, like I've read a lot about, but it's also one of those things where it's like, it's not actually fully investigated in a way that we'd like. And that's like the depleted nutrient hypothesis where it's like, you know, after the first child gets all the nutrients, like the second and third child, like unless we actually really focus on replenishing those nutrients, like you're kind of at a deficit. A lot of these are like fat soluble nutrients and stuff like that, because obviously the water soluble ones are you know, much more easily in flux, I suppose. Um, but you can imagine, like, let's say you have a child when you're 25, right? You basically spent 25 years building up those stores that the, the first child then used, right? And let's assume you have another child when you're 27, you know, two years wouldn't be un, unheard of to, you know, between children. Like you basically only had two years to replenish what took 25 years the first time so we really do ideally want to focus on eating a really nutrient dense diet after pregnancy well obviously ideally through pregnancy but it still is important after pregnancy as well both for the the mother's health but then also for subsequent pregnancies after that absolutely and that is something that's really important because i suppose this this is where like having some degree of planning in advance like family planning can be advantageous you know that you give yourself time between pregnancies to recover to re replenish your nutrient status etc um and there are like like you said with the depleted nutrient hypothesis like there probably are some things that have been investigated but there are likely a lot of those like with the breast milk question there are likely a lot of things that are you know transferred to the baby that maybe we're not even sure of at the moment we're not entirely certain of so i think the best thing that you can do is um, try to maintain a nutrient dense diet and um, try to get 
especially if you're if you're planning and having another child and just treat that like a, like almost like an off-season period where you're like right we're getting we're getting ready to go again and like you said a lot of people will leave it two years um because it, it can be quite difficult to uh, replenish and get back to a good state of health and get prepared again if you're you know leaving it shorter than that so uh, for that reason a lot of people will leave it two years and i think i think there are um, guidelines for like the optimal length between pregnancies you do see some you know differences in health outcomes whether the gap be very large or the gap be very small um, but but that's beyond the scope of this podcast 100 anyway we haven't even touched on training we're going to do that in another episode because there's a little bit more I suppose you would say nuance to the training side of things yeah. in terms of like, there's a lot more you know, interpretation on our behalf. Like obviously there's some hard guidelines, but then some of the other stuff we're going to have to go, okay, well we have to actually use our better judgment here, you know? So Gary, let's wrap this up. To wrap this up guys, uh, as always, we do have coaching spaces available. So if you are interested in coaching with triage with any member of our coaching staff, we all have availability and we'll be happy to work with you. Generally, when you apply, what we'll do is we'll allocate you to a coach that will best uh, work with you. So that's often what happens. People send in their application and uh, we'll have a look at it and we'll say, okay, this person has uh, nutrition needs, this person has rehab needs, etc., and allocate you to the best coach for you. Um, some people do have preferences. They might say, oh, I've been following Patty for a long time and I want to work with Patty. Totally fine. You can do that. Just put that in your application. So get involved. Additionally, we do put out a lot of content, guys. So make sure you're following at Triage Method on Instagram um, and also our newsletter. Uh, so we put out unique content in our newsletter that doesn't go to our social media. So subscribe to the Triage Method newsletter. Uh, get onto our email list. You can do that in the description box below. If you enjoy the podcast, share the podcast. We've been doing this female series for I don't know how many months now, but we've put out a lot of content. And uh, if you've been enjoying it, we'd appreciate if you shared it, uh, whether that be publicly on your social media or privately with a friend in a WhatsApp group, etc. They'd be much appreciated. You can also leave uh, rating, review uh, on most podcast platforms. So if you have that option, please do so. If you listen to the podcast and you're not subscribed, please subscribe. It gives us an indication of how many people are interested in the work that we're putting out. So we appreciate it. Fantastic. Anyway, I have nothing else to say, so I hope everyone enjoyed this.